Hello everyone, welcome to the very first episode of this podcast. Hopefully it will work. Uh, My name is Ruby and I'm currently at uni studying English literature and let's see if I can use those skills that I've been taught to record this podcast because then obviously I'll need my monies back. Um, Let's get started. So this podcast is all about um, analysing the Twilight Saga novels and we're going to start from the very first which is Twilight. Twilight is one of my favourite novels. Um, I just love how the series kind of changed my personality and how it inspired me growing up. So every chapter has a certain theme and we're going to start right at the beginning, the very first chapter, and the theme we're discussing today is apprehension. It's filled to the max with apprehension with Bella constantly hesitant about forks and about the people and how that's going to work. So let's just get right into it. So we're going to start with the preface. Forgive me if you hear my dogs in the background. They're very old and they act like it a lot. So let's, we're going to start with the preface. Now the preface, or the preface, is, it's basically, uh, the purpose of a preface is that it deals with the scope of the book, it adds drama, anticipation, and it persuades the reader to continue reading. It's kind of like a marketing scheme. You know, you add a little bit of hint of what the book's about to see if the reader will keep on reading. Um, most books will have a preface or a prologue just to kind of add that suspense factor into it. So on page one, the very first line, I'd never given much thought to how I would die, though I had reason enough in the last few months, but even if I had, I would not have imagined it like this. Wow, that is very intense. Just minutes straight up, you know, that adds that constant apprehension um, and also mystery to the book. You know, you would read that, you know, as a reader, you would read that and think, okay, so what's happening? Is she dead? Is she not? What's, how does she die? You know, what is this about? You know, what is this about? Um, a continuous device that Stephanie Meyer always uses is first person. It's always through the eyes of Bella. It is essentially the Twilight Saga is Bella's diary. It is through her eyes how she experiences the world which is great because we then form this very personal attachment to the character, but also it doesn't allow us to experience, you know, the other the other thoughts of the other characters and their perspective and their view on Bella. Um, there was a book that was going to come out called Midnight Sun, which was basically Twilight, but from Edward's point of view, but it was Stephanie Meyer had to end up finishing it because it got leaked onto the internet and you know due to copyright laws and issues and all that she couldn't really continue it more but I would have loved to have read that book to kind of see you know Edward's perspective to kind of you know kind of see stuff that you wouldn't see with Bella you know more connections with his family how he feels you know what is he like without Bella what does he do that's what I would have that's what I would love to focus on 
So we're only going to be focusing on very, very little bits of the chapters, because if I focused on every important thing in every chapter, we would be here for like two hours. So it is very minimalized. You know, there is a lot that I did have to hold back. But I think that what I have included per chapter in this podcast is is the most important. So let's move on to First Sight, Chapter 1, which is what we're discussing. Again, the theme, Apprehension. Let's, let's start with a very important line that I think really resonates with where you start to see Bella's mindset. And that is in the first paragraph on page 3. I was wearing my favourite shirt, sleeveless, white eyelet lace. I was wearing it as farewell jester. My carry-on item was a parka. That that juxtaposition there of wearing a sleeveless, a tank top, basically, and then wearing a parka automatically kind of insinuates to the reader that she's going from somewhere that's kind of hot and warm and family to cold and unfamiliar and foreign. That is a very good move on Stephanie Meyer's part to bring that kind of subtext to the chapter and to the storyline. It's a very good move. Um, so moving on to page four, the very first line. It was to Fawkes that I now exiled myself, an action that I took with great horror. I detested Fawkes. I mean, that straight off the bat there, that already shows you what Bella's... Um, comprehension of Fawkes is it's a very you know she's unfamiliar with Fawkes she hasn't been she hasn't seen Fawkes since she was two and now she has to go back there and kind of start her own life again it's and also it brings about that familiarity between Bella and the reader because every one of us has been in situations where we wish that we weren't there and that we didn't need to be there but yet we've done it anyway You know, we've all been in, we've all had those moments of great hesitation where we really wish that we didn't have to be in the situation at that time, which again adds to the related the relatableness of Bella. Bella is such an iconic Twilight in in when the novels and the film came out, simply because there were heaps of girls, you know, heaps of girls like me, you know, girls like me, who really could relate to her and how she was feeling and her personality you know admittedly um twilight is very much catered for a female audience and you can tell you you can tell based on kind of how she writes and how she depicts edward that it is for a very female-based audience um the very famous quote just underneath i loved phoenix i loved the sun and the blistering heat i loved the vigorous sprawling city that quote is very famous because that was used in the film yes i'm going to constantly go back to the film because again i also study film at uni but i think but i do love kind of comparing the film to the adaptation and seeing what the differences are you know, what's similar, you know, and also what's similar and kind of how did Catherine Hardwick put her own perspective onto the novel? I think that's very intriguing. 
But that line was one of the most earliest scenes in the film. Um, you know, again, you know, there's again there's that second um, scene of sorry, that was my dog just barking then. Of the second scene, you know, of that kind of over, you know, over, you know, bird's eye view of the trees and of forks, and then it, you know, then it, and then the scene changes to her kind of a close up of her with her face towards the sun, and then, and the narration, the narration, the voice over of I loved Phoenix, I loved the sort of the blistering heat, I loved the vigorous, sprawling city. Again, that automatically shows what she prefers. Okay, moving on. So we're going to move on now to when Bella and Charlie first meet. Charlie is Bella's dad. She hasn't seen him in about, you know, four or five years. So moving on to page five, when Bella gets off the plane. Charlie gave me an awkward one-arm hug when I stumbled my way off the plane. It's good to see you, Bells, he said, smiling, as he automatically caught and sitting me. You haven't changed much. How's Renee? So, already of Charlie, we see this kind of very awkward paternal effect that he hasn't really been a father for a while. He, you know, he's a very kind of nurturing, you know, dad who's still quite awkward and doesn't really you know, talk, um, to people, very introverted, you know, it's not very maternal, it's not very paternal, excuse me, um, about, you know, about his daughter, and Bella is very much similar, and, and what's very common in Twilight, in the novel, is you really see their relationship develop, where they are very similar to each other, and, and but how do they kind of react to that how do they react to that similarity how does it continue how does it base their life how does it kind of create Bella's life for the better in Forks it's quite beautiful so moving on we're going to page seven and this is a moment where we dis- where we dwell into Stephanie's view of Forks and we discuss what Forks looks like in terms of place. So page seven, right at the bottom. It was beautiful, of course, I couldn't deny it. Everything was green. The trees, their trunks covered with moss, their branches hanging with a canopy off it, the ground covered with ferns. Even the air filtered down greenly through the leaves. It was too green, alien planet. Um, that is quite beautifully written and automatically the reader, you know, we as readers already have that imagined view of place and what it's like and how we depict it. Which is in the movie, it's that shot where Charlie is in the car with Bella and we can see her looking at the constant greenery of it. You know, that green can also mean, like, humbling a welcome. It can also mean jealousy and envy. Um, green is a very kind of multifaceted colour in terms of meaning. And how is that meaning in the book? We'll have to keep continuing with that later on. I just love the line, it was too green an alien planet. I think that really, 
resonate to what Bella feels at the moment, that she feels that she is in a foreign world. She's very hesitant about attending the high school and being in Forks. And that thing of apprehension, you know, that she feels, you know, so out of place, I think is very common. And we can really empathise with her because most of us have been through that. And then it continues on page nine when we also we also get to see what Bella herself looks like, but we also get to see what she feels as a person when she is in Forks. So we're going to move to page nine. Um, we're going to... Right at the top with the line, I would be the new girl from a big city, a curiosity, a freak. All the kids here have grown up together. Their grandparents have been toddlers together. That little paragraph really sums up the township of Forks. You know, how these people have been here for years. There's generations, you know, of roots. And Bella, you know, and Bella just feels like she doesn't belong already due to the fact that she doesn't have... Um, that common ground of ancestral root and belonging that a lot of people in Forks has. And so we can really empathise with her on that. And again, there's always that constant apprehension that she does feel like a fish out of water. And now we're going to move on to what she looks like. So, let's start. Maybe if I looked like a girl from Phoenix should, I could work this to my advantage, but physically I'd never fit in anywhere. I should be tan, sporty blonde, a volley player, a volleyball player, excuse me, or a cheerleader perhaps, all the things that go with living in the Valley of the Sun. Instead, I was ivory-skinned, without even the excuse of blue eyes or red hair despite the constant sunshine. I had always been slender, but soft somehow, obviously not an athlete. I didn't have the necessary hand-eye coordination to play sports without humiliating myself and harming both myself and anyone else who stood too close. I looked at my face in the mirror as I brushed through my tangled, damp hair. Maybe it was the light, but already I looked sallower, unhealthy. My skin could be pretty. It was very clear, almost translucent-looking. But it all depended on colour. I had no colour here. Facing my pallid reflection in the mirror, I just was forced to admit that I was lying to myself. It wasn't just physically that I had never fit in. And if I couldn't find a niche in a school with 3,000 people, what were my chances here? I didn't relate well to people my age. Maybe the truth was that I didn't relate well to people, period. Isn't that beautiful? So we really see... Bella's self in reflection it's quite negative isn't it how she thinks for herself she doesn't really think of herself in a positive way she doesn't have the most positive body image you know she does say that she has really nice translucent skin but again it focuses on the color or the lighting you know she or you know she feels like she's always constantly out of place you know you, you know she's from phoenix but yet she's pale she's not sporty she's not tanned like how people living in Arizona should. Um, you know, she didn't relate well to people her age, 17, and she didn't even relate well to people, period. And again, again, Stephanie really creates this character as someone who is very relatable. Like, I have been, I very much relate to Bella's character. I'm 21 and I still kind of have those feelings where I don't feel like I act like a 21-year-old or think like a 21-year-old should. 
Um, I don't, you know, I don't act young, you know, um, I don't really relate well to people. And there's heaps of women and men out there who think of me, who, who think exactly like I do when it comes to that, that we just don't think we belong. And so I, we have that apprehension of kind of surviving and deal with other people, particularly with me, because I do a communications and media and arts degree where I am around people a lot. My, my work, what I want to a career in is around people. And Bella, I think people just, Stephanie, you know, allowed people to love her so much because she was so relatable in that she was a misfit. And her misfit personality really shines in this bit where we where we can really see what she thinks of herself you know the fact that she knows that she does not fit in and it's very painful for her and even if she tries to fit in it's not going to work and I think we all can relate to that at some point in our age and lives okay so we're going to move on to the truck now, the truck, I think, is a mass subtextual prop for this novel because it real the truck is Bella. You know, the truck is the number one thing that gives Bella some sort of hope. You know, she feels protected in her truck. She feels safe. Even when she's with Edward and Edward would like her to replace the truck for something more modern, she refuses to because she likes the truck makes her comfortable. And it's a really beautiful prop that Stephanie Meyer uses in order to have something in Bella's life in this, when she is in this very new state of living. So it's on page 11, in the middle of the page. Inside the truck, it was nice and dry. Either Billy or Charlie had obviously cleaned it up, but the tan upholstered seats still smelt faintly of tobacco, gasoline and peppermint. The engine started quickly to my relief, but loudly roaring to life and then idling at a top volume. Where a truck this old was bound to have a flaw. The antique radio worked. A plus that I hadn't expected. Now let's look at those scents. Tobacco, gasoline and peppermint. Those are really comforting scents. For me personally, I love the smell of tobacco. You know, I, I, I do smoke cigarettes. But I also, there's something very comforting about the smell of tobacco. Particularly, I think, if you had like a grandfather... Um, or an uncle, or a dad, or just, or, you know, or, or a mom, or an auntie, or a friend, or someone who was very comforting to you that smoked, and always had that tobacco smell, it can be very comforting, it can be very homely, it can remind you of good times, the same with gasoline, you know, they're all very homely scents, they're all very, they're, they're all kind of scents that you can really find at home, um, you know, peppermint as well, I just, whenever I think of peppermint, I think of those little peppermint dew drops, that we could buy from Woolies for like two dollars when we were very young. I'm not sure if they still sell them, but they were really good. Um, just even the even including those three smells already brings life to the truck. That you can imagine the truck smelling like that, and there's something very homely about that. And it and it diminishes Bella's apprehension when she knows that she can just after school. Or when she feels stressed, can just be in that truck. Again, Stephanie also kind of caters to that technique of, um, of kind of a teenager or an early or someone in their youth, you know, driving an old bomb car or an old bomb truck. In this case, 
I really love it when authors um, kind of have these niches to their characters of them driving old cars because, um, you know, because when they're kind of in that youth in their life, you know, you probably wouldn't really have the money to buy a brand new car. And so to have a very, you know, old car, there's just something really cool and comforting about it that you can relate to it. You know, it reminds me very much of the book Into the Wild with Christopher McCandless where he drives his, I think it's an 84 Datsun, but there's something so cool about that, that he has this really old bomb car. There's something very relatable about that. I have an old bomb car. I have a 93 Toyota Corolla. The car is older than me, but I love it because it really adds to that effect of a youth driving an old bomb car because that's all they could afford. You know, when when you think of a youth of people my age, you know, 21, you know, kind of like, you know, kind of like youth, like 16 to 25 or 30 now, you know, you don't need, you know, the it's it's extended to 30, the the youth age. Um, you don't really think of wealth. You think of people struggling to earn money to kind of pave their way into what they want to be when they when they're older and they have a career. Um, so you you can't imagine them driving a really posh car and I love that Stephanie has decided that for Bella she needs to drive an old truck I think it really adds that more authenticity to her I just personally love it so let's let's jump ahead we're going to talk about the colors a very big point uh most the rest of this episode will discuss the Cullens, because I think they are really important to the first chapter. Let's just get into it. Right at the bottom, at the side of page 15, it was there sitting in the lunchroom trying to make conversation with seven curious strangers that I first saw them. They were sitting in the corner of the cafeteria as far away from where I sat as possible in the lawn room. There were five of them. They weren't talking and they weren't eating, though they each had a tray of untouched food in front of them. They weren't gawking at me unlike most of the other students, so it was safe to stare at them without fear of meeting an excessively interested pair of eyes. But it was none of these things that caught and held my attention. They didn't look anything alike. Of the three boys who was muscled... Excuse me. Of the three boys, one was big, muscled like a serious weightlifter with dark curly hair. Excuse me. <coughs> Pardon. Another was taller, leaner, but still muscular and honey blonde. The last was less lanky, less bulky, with untidied bronze-coloured hair. He was more boyish than the others, who looked like they could be in college or even teachers here rather than students. The girls were opposites. The tall one was statuesque. She had a beautiful figure, the kind you saw on the cover of the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue, the kind that made every girl around her take a hit on her self-esteem just by being in the same room. Her hair was golden, gently waving to the middle of her back. The short girl was pixie-like, thin in the extreme with small features. Her hair was a deep black, cropped short and pointed, pointing in every direction. And yet, they were all exactly alike. Every one of them was chalky pale, the palest of all the students living in the sunless town. Paler than me, the albino, they all had very dark eyes, despite the range in hair tones. They also had dark shadows under those eyes, purple bruise-like shadows as if they were all suffering from a sleepless night or almost done recovering from a broken nose. Though their noses 
all their features were straight, perfectly angular. But all this is not why I couldn't look away. I said because their faces so different, so similar, were all devastatingly, inhumanly beautiful. I mean, wow. I mean, can you imagine, like, just seeing that in real life? You know, how would you feel if you were sitting across... If you were sitting across from someone and from a group of people and they looked, looked like that. And that little, that little moment that Bella has regarding looking at those, regarding looking at those, um, at, at the Cullens, takes away her apprehension. She doesn't mention any time at all when she's looking at the Cullens how she doesn't want to be at school and she's very awkward and she doesn't want to be with folks. They take away her apprehension, which is quite nice, you know. Already it kind of establishes that, you know, that, that the rapport between Bella and the Cullens are not going to be as complicated and as um, difficult as what as what it might seem, which is nice. It you know it it brings more lightheartedness to the situation. So let's move on to page seventeen. So we'll start with. There we go. In the middle, who are they? I asked the girl from my Spanish class, whose name I'd forgotten. As she looked up to see who I meant, though already known probably for my tone, suddenly he looked at her, the thinner one, the boyish one, the youngest, perhaps. He looked at my neighbour for just a fraction of a second, and then his dark eyes flickered to mine. He looked away quickly, more quickly than I could, though in a flush of embarrassment, I dropped my eyes at once. And then we're going to continue a little bit. My neighbour giggled, giggled in embarrassment, looking at the table like I did. That's Edward and Emmett, Emmett Cullen and Rosaline Jasmine, Jasper Hale. The one who left was Alice Cullen. They all lived together with Dr Cullen and his wife. She said this under her breath. I glanced sideways at the beautiful boy who was looking at his tray now, picking a bagel to pieces with long pale fingers. They are very nice looking. I struggle with the conspicuous understatement. I mean, wow, like, you know, that's so, so already, you know, we already we see that she's distracted. She's distracted by these Cullens. They've obviously, you know, even just by looking at them, they've distracted her from what's happening with being in a new school at the moment. And already we can see this connection that that she's forming, you know, to this bronze head boy. We don't know what his name is yet. Um, you know, we don't we don't know, you know, his personality, but already we see that she is drawn to him. And she does ask about him on page 19 when she asks, which one is the boy with the reddish-brown hair, I asked. That's Edward. He's gorgeous, of course, but don't waste your time. He doesn't date. Apparently, none of the girls here are good-looking enough for him. I bit my lip to hide my smile, then I glanced at him again. His face was turned away, but I thought his cheek appeared as if he was smiling too. That little banter is so cute between the two of them. I, I think it's really nice. It's a real soft moment before we move on to the next page, where they have to sit together for the first time in the biology class, and obviously that gets really intense. 
it's just it's just a really Stephanie Meyer just really loves to add these soft moments in that kind of bring a sense of lightheartedness against the tension that is seen a lot in this novel. Let's move on to the next page and we're going to discuss the, um, the biology scene, the first biology scene. And again, it's hard as well because in the films you can't really express that kind of reaction and what Bella's thinking through just camera shots and through facial expressions. It's really difficult. Which is why, which is why I think if you need to watch the film, you should at least read the book to understand what she's really thinking, because it, it's very, it, you can't do that with film. You can do it with the facial expressions, but only on a very minor aspect. So we're going to start on page twenty, uh, in the middle. As I walked down the aisle to introduce myself to the teacher and get my slip signed, I was watching him surreptitiously. Just as I passed, he suddenly went rigid in his seat. He stared at me again, meeting my eyes with a strange expression on his face. It was hostile, furious. I looked away quickly, shocked, going red again. I noticed that his eyes were black. Cold black. Moving down again. I... He was leaning away from me, sitting on the extreme edge of his chair and averting his face like he smelled something bad. Inconspicuously, I sniffed my hair. It smelled like strawberries, the scent of my favourite shampoo. It seemed like an innocent enough odour. I left my hair fall over my right shoulder. Pardon me, those were my dogs. Pardon me, my dogs were barking. My sister had to let the cat in. I let my hair fall over my right shoulder, making a dark curtain between us, and tried to pay attention to the teacher. I couldn't stop myself from peeking occasionally through the screen of my hair at the strange boy next to me. During the whole class, he never relaxed his stiff position on the edge of his chair, sitting as far from me as possible. I could see his hand on his left leg was clenched into a fist, tendons standing out under his pale skin. This, too, he never relaxed. He had the long sleeves of his white shirt pushed up to his elbows, and his forearm was surprisingly hard and muscular beneath his light skin. He wasn't nearly as slight as he looked next to his burly brother. The class seemed to drag on longer than the others. It couldn't have anything to do with me. He did know me from Eve. I picked up at him one more time and regretted it. He was glaring down at me again, his black eyes full of revulsion. As I flinched away from him, shrinking against my chair, the phrase, if looks could kill, suddenly ran through my mind. At that moment, the bell rang loudly, making me jump, and Edward Cullen was right out of his seat. Fluidly, he rose. He was much taller than I thought. He's back to me, and he was out the door before anyone else was out of their seat. I mean, wow. Wow, wow, wow. So, Stephanie Meyer... She's she allows Edward to be threatening, but she writes it in the most attractive manner. You know, like she's describing how he's a lot more muscular than his than what Bella thought that he would be. That you could see the tendons out of his, you know, the veins kind of on his white skin. You know, the fact that he's lean. Again, she really does add to that vampiric effect that modern vampires have 
And I'm just not talking about Twilight, I'm talking about as far back as, say, you know, Bella Lugosi's Dracula, or, say, Lost Boys, or Fright Night and all of its corny glory, or Buffy, even, um, or, um, you know, the 1990s version of Dracula. Like, all the characters of vampires are all beautiful, even when threatening. And Stephanie, again, really highlights that trope in the novel. The fact that even though he does look, you know, if looks could kill, he looks like he could kill her. Excuse me, that was my dog's. Um, he is still quite beautiful and she's still very much attracted to him, even though she is obviously very angry, very frightened, she's very confused. Um, it's a very classic vampire trait. Um, again, you know, another great film, Interview with a Vampire, is filled with that, even with, you know, Louise, you know, even with Louis and Lestat you know, particularly with with Lestat, like, he's just such a, you know, an amant, you know, they're both such, um, uh, threatening, murderous vampires, but yet, even when they seem the most threatening, they are still quite beautiful and drawful to the eye, and Stephanie Meyer does a really good job of kind of taking that concept making it a lot more modern and contemporary, making it not as um, adult and mature, because again, this book is catered to young adults, and some would say even preteens. I was about 10 years old when I read this. Um, it is, it, it is, it, I, I would say it's pretty okay for a preteen. I'd say the, the first two, you know, the first kind of three novels are um, to an extent, you know, parental or caution parental caution is advised, um, but Stephanie, again, you know, she is, and again, Bella does play the kind of damsel where even though she, she doesn't want to be there, you know, she's very obsessed with him, you know, she doesn't realise that it's actually the smell that makes Edward more, um, you know, the, the, the smell makes Edward kind of his vampiric self and more desirable to Bella, but she doesn't know that, so she just, she just thinks that that he is revolted by her, when in reality, he's trying to not kill her. <coughs> and again, it adds to that kind of tortured soul energy that a lot of the vampire male characters tend to have in a lot of the contemporary vampire films and novels, because there is just something quite beautiful about being tortured about something that you couldn't have, particularly if it's particularly it's more desirable if it's a male towards a female. Um, you know, it's you know it, it it's kind of that um, you know that that kind of sinner, you know, lusting for the maiden. That 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 if she if he does get her, he'll make she'll make his life entirely better, um, and you can never have it. You know, it's that wanting of what you can't have very typical, very romantic, um, and it'll probably, you'll see it in many more books and films to come, I believe. So anyway, let's continue. So let's go, and then finally, we're going to go to the office scene where they both meet each other for the final time in the first chapter. Um, let's start with the middle on page 23 
Elokar stood at the desk in front of me. I recognized again that twisted bronze hair. He didn't appear to notice the sound of my entrance. I stood pressed against the back wall, waiting for the receptionist to be free. He was arguing with her in a low, attractive voice. I quickly picked up the gist of the argument. He was trying to trade from sixth-hour biology to another time, any other time. I couldn't believe that this was about me. It had to be something else, something that happened before I entered the biology room. The look on his face must have been about another aggravation entirely. It was impossible that this stranger could take such a sudden, intense dislike to me. We want to skip a little bit? But Edward Cullen's back stiffened and he turned slowly to glare at me. His face was absurdly handsome with piercing, hate-filled eyes. For an instant, I felt a thrill of genuine fear raising the hair on my arms. The look only lasted a second, but it chilled me more than the freezing wind. He turned back to the receptionist. Never mind then, he said hastily in a voice like velvet. I considered it's impossible. Thank you so much for your help. And he turned on his heel without another look at me and disappeared out the door. I went meekly to the desk, my face white for one instead of red, and hand her the sign slip. How did your first day go, dear? The receptionist asked maternally. Fine, I lied, my voice weak. She didn't look convinced. When I got to the truck, it was almost the life car on the lot. It seemed like a haven, already the closest into home I had in this damp green hole. I sat inside for a while, just staring out the windshield blankly, but soon I was cold enough to need the heater, so I turned the key in the engine and roared for life. I headed back to Charlie's house fighting tears the whole way there and that completes chapter one again we see more of that classic vampire trope of the vampire being completely in bloodlust with it's usually female with the female human so instead of acting romantic towards her he'll just kind of pretend that he doesn't like her um, which therefore turns the human off the vampire. It's a very classic contemporary trope. You see in a lot of modern 21st century films, like the ones that I've mentioned, um, again, kind of adds that more romance tension because what happens when the female human usually does not go away? She keeps constantly coming back, you know, you know kind of wanting more information in, about the vampire's personality. I really love that immediately she feels better when she's in the truck, you know, like, exactly, you know, I love that line, it was almost a life kind of lot, it seemed like a haven, already the closest thing to home I knew in this damp green hole, it's beautiful because it so shows how much of a connection she has to the truck already, that it is her home, it makes her feel best, and it's such an old bombed truck, it's very old, but yet it feels lovely we can you know i'm sure that if you drive if you've, if you've had a really bad day and work and or uni has stinks and you drive you feel so much better when you're in your car because if you do drive you probably do spend a lot of time in your car we all have that relative feeling so already the connection between bella and edward is quite intense um, her apprehension goes up and down a lot when she's with Edward, even in the first chapter. So we can only imagine what happens in the continuous chapter and their connection and their relationship evolves, which I can't wait to continue working on. Um, again, boomer of a chapter, very intense, right off the bat, draws you in, good stuff. The film, again, doesn't really bring that in-depthness to the screen because it is really hard because a lot of 